Well, congregation, as we uh, come to our sermon this morning, we've reached the last chapter of the book of Acts. And we have spent almost uh, over 30 sermons on this book by my calculation, and pretty much all of the last year studying this book. And now we come to the close of this book. So this morning, I thought it would be good for us to look back and to reflect, to look at the big picture, to look at the whole forest instead of just the trees, and, and, to, and to try to draw lessons for our own church, for our own life and walk as Christians from this book. Now, before we do that, let's just quickly look then at this last chapter that we have before us. Uh, remember last week that Paul had uh, been shipwrecked near the island of Malta, and he's, uh, he, had, he had prophesied on that ship that every single one of the passengers would be safe and would reach the land, and so it came to be. So now we find Paul and all the passengers of this ship on the island of Malta. It's cold. They start a fire, and you have this incident with the, the viper, this snake, uh, comes out of the wood and bites Paul. But again, God, by his marvelous, miraculous power, is able to save Paul's life, and the viper's venom has no effect upon him. The people are greatly uh, impressed. Uh, they go from thinking that he had committed some sin, was a murderer, to thinking that he was a prophet, uh, that he was a god, I'm sorry, that he actually was a god. And, uh, and, and they get along quite well with those people, and we read that uh, at the close of their visit, they honored us, verse 10, with many marks of respect, and when we were setting sail, they supplied us with all that we needed. Then Paul goes to Rome. He meets different, uh, in different cities. He meets believers that are already uh, present, churches that are already established in those cities. When he reaches Rome, we have this interesting account, uh, which we're very used to by now in the book of Acts, that Paul preaches to the Jews. And we have the familiar refrain that we've seen so many times in this book, some believed and some did not. Finally, at the close of this chapter and at the close of the book of Acts, we have Paul under house arrest. It's a very loose house arrest because you can see from this chapter that Paul receives great crowds of people. Quite a number of people come to speak with him. Large numbers of Jews come to hear his perspective on the Messiah. And Paul is able to preach to them without any hindrance. We do know that from this imprisonment, Paul was released. If you turn to Philippians, chapter 1 of Philippians, we see that Paul, uh, and by the way, remember that uh, from this first imprisonment of Paul in Rome is when he wrote the four prison letters. They're called the prison letters. Those letters are uh, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. Philippians, Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon. Those are the four letters that Paul wrote from Rome when he was imprisoned for the first time. So when we turn to the letter of Philippians, chapter 1, verse 24, we find Paul already uh, wrestling with the fact that he might be set free. In Philippians 1, in chapter 23, we read, But I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better, and yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. So you see that already uh, there, Paul is, is uh, not entirely certain that this is going to be his last day, that he may very well be released from prison. 
And he's pulled between these two, uh, between these two options. Should I, should I desire that the Romans would put me to death so I can go be with Christ? That would be far better, he says. But also he recognizes that the church needs him and that he has a ministry to perform in the life of the church. And so he's swayed between these two options. It seems that later in Paul's life, or in Paul's imprisonment, he wrote this letter to Philemon. Now, if you turn to Philemon, you'll find that Paul uh, is now quite certain that he's going to be released. In Philemon, and of course Philemon just has one chapter, it's right before the book of Hebrews, kind of a difficult book to find, but right directly before the book of Hebrews, you have this little one-chapter book where Paul wrote a letter to Philemon, and of course that was regarding the slave Onesimus. But in verse 22 of Philemon, Paul writes, and at the same time also, he's writing this to Philemon, prepare me a lodging, for I hope that through your prayers I shall be given to you. Now there, clearly Paul is quite optimistic that he actually is going to be released. And he was right. He was released from this imprisonment. And notice he's already thinking about where is he going to go once he walks out of prison. He needs a place to stay. And so probably one of the reasons for this letter was not just to talk about Onesimus, but also to uh, prepare for his eventual release from prison and to uh, prepare him a place to stay once he is released. So, again, at the end of the book of Acts, we have Paul is in prison, er, not in prison, and under house arrest, a loose house arrest. People are able to visit him. And we know that after some while in that house arrest, he is released. And he goes on and does other things. The second time Paul is arrested, and that's when he writes the letter of 2 Timothy, you know the mood has very much changed against Christians. And Paul is now very certain that he is not going to get out of prison alive. And indeed, that's exactly what happens. But at any rate, at the close of the book of Acts, Paul is under a loose house arrest in Rome. Now, let's then do what I said at the beginning of this message. Let's look back at the book of Acts and try to see the big picture, try to step back and reflect on all what we've learned uh, in, this, in this long series of sermons. And dear friends, uh, for myself, I was able to go back and look at my notes for the first sermon that I preached on the book of Acts. And that was uh, instructive because this is, uh, in that first sermon, what I was expecting to find in the book of Acts what we were looking forward to seeing. And now we look back with such a different perspective because we've been through all these pages of the book of Acts. And one of the points that I made in that first sermon was this, that in the book of Acts, we would see the unfolding of God's covenant of grace and especially God's new covenant, the new covenant. Now, over the last weeks of Advent especially, we've been looking at the different covenants and uh, we saw last week the ratification, or not last week, in one of the previous sermons, we saw the ratification of God's old covenant, or what is known in Scripture as the old covenant. In Exodus 24, remember, the blood was sprinkled on the altar, and then the blood was sprinkled on the people. And both sides had their responsibilities to keep in the covenant. And we know from what Paul teaches us in the book of Galatians, that God gave Israel that covenant to teach them their own inability to keep God's commandments, to bring Israel to that place where they would own the fact that they did not have what it took to obey God's commandments. Of their own accord, of their own resources, they did not have 
what it took. And that's why Israel was crying out. It's why God promised them a new covenant. And again, when I went back to the notes for the first sermon on the book of Acts, I said in that sermon that in the books of Acts, we would be the spectators, the spectators of what God would do by means of his Holy Spirit in the life of his church. I mean by that, dear congregation, that we would be the spectators of God's new covenant mercies to his people. And the pages of the Old Testament, we can read about the history of the Old Covenant. It's a very depressing story. It's the story of failure. It's the story of stiff-necked people. It's the story of hard-hearted people. It's the story of a constant uh, falling back into idolatry and sin and unfaithfulness. But what a difference we see in the book of Acts. What a radical difference we see. Why? Because this is God's new covenant. God said to Jeremiah, in fact, I want to read that. It's so important that we, that we see these things in our own minds. And I know uh, some time ago we, I preached on Jeremiah 31, so I think this is somewhat familiar to you. But in Jeremiah 31 and verse 31, we read these words. Jeremiah 31 and verse 31. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. So now in the time of the old covenant, when the prophets saw so clearly that Israel was a failure. Time and time again, they relapsed into old patterns of sin. They always looked longingly at the idols of the nations around them, and they just didn't have the heart to keep God's commandments. But now a new time comes. God promises a new covenant. And remember, my friends, we said that the new covenant is marked by past sins forgotten, future obedience Ensured. That is in a, in a, and it encapsulates the truth of the new covenant right there. Old sins forgotten or forgiven. Future obedience ensured. And now we turn to the book of Acts. Now we turn to the book of Acts. And in Acts chapter 2, after the day of Pentecost, and let me just read you some of these things from the book of Acts. We read after Pentecost that all the Christians, the new believers, began selling off their property to support the poor that were among them. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. My friends, do you hear the difference? What a, how different 
Take in your hand and read the history that we have in the book of Judges. Or take in your hand the, the history that we have in the book of First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. Those are the records, the annals of the history of the Old Covenant. And now take in your hand the book of Acts. Because now what you're reading is God's new covenant mercies to his people. What a radical shift. What a radical change. I continue, my friends. In Acts 4, we read, And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. From Acts chapter 5, So they went on their way from the presence of the council. This is uh, when Peter and John were arrested uh, for preaching in the temple square. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. And my friends, I, I mean, you could go on every page of the book of Acts. The enthusiasm of these new believers, the, the zeal that they showed in their obedience to God, in their enthusiasm for the gospel, their love for the teaching, their gathering together from day to day, being full of the Spirit. Uh, I found it interesting that even when Stephen and the other uh, six, seven men were elected to be deacons, even they didn't stick to their stated responsibilities. Stephen was a preacher. He went out and preached and argued with the Jews, proving that Jesus was the Messiah. Again, though, though it wasn't these men so much, but the presence and the power of the Spirit of God within them that just drove them and led them to do things that are so unusual and so remarkable. Later on in the book of Acts, we read on, on a number of different occasions of whole families being baptized into the Christian faith. It reminds me of what we read in Jeremiah in the 34th verse where we read, And they shall not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them or to the oldest of them. And again, isn't that exactly what we saw in the book of Acts? That whole families were welcomed into the gospel, into the kingdom of God. It reminded me also of what we read in the Heidelberg Catechism. In the Heidelberg Catechism, question 123. I really think, uh, dear friends, that this... Oh, I put that on the outline there. On the outline where I put question uh, 123... What does the second petition mean? So that is the second petition of the Lord's Prayer. And the answer is, your kingdom come, means. <clears throat> and then hear this, my friends, and, and tell me, is this not the book of Acts? Rule us by your word and spirit in such a way that more and more we submit to you. Preserve and increase your church. Destroy the devil's work. Destroy every force which revolts against you and every conspiracy against your holy word. Do all this until your kingdom fully comes, when you will be all in all. My friends, is that not the book of Acts? Isn't what the catechism says there exactly what we read on page after page after page of the book of Acts? That Christ is ruling from heaven by his word and spirit, bringing people to submit to him, increasing his church, tearing down the work of the devil, destroying every force which revolts against Christ and bringing in his kingdom. Now these last verses, or these, these last lines of the catechism have not yet happened yet, 
do all this until your kingdom fully comes when you will be all in all. That has yet to come. But we see a beginning of it already in the book of Acts. And so, my friends, my first point then this morning is just this, that in the book of Acts, we were spectators. We pulled up a chair, as it were, and we watched God work by his word and by his spirit to establish his kingdom. And that, my friends, is a happy place to be. There's no better entertainment, if I can put it, if I can use that, that word. In a sense, it's a terrible word to use, but it captures so accurately what I'm trying to say. It's the best entertainment we possibly can have to see the Spirit of God moving in His people and moving outside His church and gathering in His people and establishing His kingdom and tearing down the work of Satan. What a happy and blessed thing it is to watch that work. My friends, that brings us then to the second point, opposition. Opposition. Because as surely as we know that the Lord is going to work and as we see Him working in the book of Acts, as we see Him working in the book of Acts, we know that there is going to be opposition. God promised us from the very first days of creation that the seed of the serpent would bruise the heel of the seed of the woman. And now we see that also taking place in the book of Acts. We see Satan's constant, unrelenting effort to hinder, to block, to prevent the work of God from going forward. Every step of the way, whether it was the Sanhedrin, whether it was Herod, Festus, Felix, Agrippa, and actually more significantly were the constant Jewish mobs Paul was stoned. Stephen was stoned. We saw the storm that took place at the, uh, at the, in Acts uh, 27. And even the viper that we had in Acts 28, this last chapter that we read. All these efforts by Satan to destroy the work of God. Now, my friends, one thing I want to note here in this point on the opposition that came to the progress of the kingdom of God is how much of this opposition came from religious groups. I think it's noteworthy in the book of Acts that we point that out, that so much of the opposition that comes against the kingdom of God in the book of Acts does not come from Rome. It does not come from the, from the secular civil government of Rome. In fact, repeatedly in the book of Acts, we see that Rome shrugs their shoulders. They don't really care. As long as you keep the peace, as long as there's not a riot. Remember, there was a riot in the city of Ephesus, and then Rome got involved, Right? Uh, but by and large, a Rome is just, they don't really care. They shrug their shoulders. Uh, remember, the, uh, the, in, in the city of Corinth was that man named Gallio, and the, the word from Gallio was that he cared for none of these things. The real opposition that comes against the kingdom of God is from the Jewish religion. Those are the people who, who are the mobs who try to prevent Paul and the other apostles from doing their work. My friends, we must not be surprised as a church and as individual Christians when we encounter opposition. In fact, the truth is, dear friends, we probably be, should be surprised that we don't experience it very often. That we experience very little opposition in our lives as Christians. And in the different ministries that God has given us in our life, we have it pretty peaceful and pretty smooth. 
By far, the vast majority of Christians in this world do not have that luxury. They face opposition. And neither must we be surprised then when we encounter opposition in our own time. And we need, deeply need, the wisdom of God to know how to navigate, to know when to compromise, when to uh, tolerate different things, when to be flexible on some things, but also, on the other hand, where to be inflexible, where there are points that are just non-negotiable. We will not compromise on these points. We will stay strong. To know that line is very difficult. And how, how deeply, my friends, we need the wisdom, discernment that only the Spirit of God can give. In the book of James, we read, If any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. He gives it liberally. And my friends, that should drive us to our knees in prayer, especially in the times in which we live, when the opposition is so subtle. My third point, my friends, is Christ and the Spirit. I find that as we study the book of Acts, we were given such a clear picture of who Jesus Christ is for his people and who the Holy Spirit is for his people. On the outline there, I put those, uh, that, that se sentence, Christ the center. So that blank, that first blank is Christ the center. The Holy Spirit, the power. Christ the center or the focus, we could say it that way as well. Christ the center or the focus, the spirit, the power. Now in John chapter 16, before Jesus had left this world, he had given us this instruction about the work of his spirit. In John 16 and verse 12, John 16 and verse 12, Jesus taught his disciples. He says, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will disclose to you what is to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall take of mine and shall disclose it to you. And there we find exactly what we see in the book of Acts. That the Lord Jesus Christ is the center. He is the focus. All the preaching points to him. And the Holy Spirit is the, is the one behind the scenes, if I can put it that way. He's the power working in the hearts of people, directing, leading, convicting, and bringing people to the feet of Jesus. Christ is always the focus. Christ is always the center. And the Spirit is always the power. Let's take your Bible, and let's look at the book of Acts. And let's start in chapter 2, and let's just see this. Look with me at Acts chapter 2 and verse 36. So Acts chapter 2 obviously is the day of Pentecost, the baptism of the Spirit of God. And in Acts chapter 2 and verse 36, Acts 2 and verse 36, Peter comes to the end of his sermon, and he says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, there is the conclusion, the grand conclusion of Paul's message. And the focus there is Christ. Now, continue in your Bible and let's turn to chapter 3 
And again, let's look at verse 26. So Acts 3 and verse 26. Now this is after Peter and John healed the lame man who was sitting outside the temple gate. And then the crowd gathers and they have another opportunity to speak. And what's the conclusion of that message? So Acts chapter 3 and verse 26. For you first, and this is Peter speaking, for you first, God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. Now, again, the Lord Jesus Christ is the center of the message. The Lord Jesus Christ is that servant whom who, uh, God has sent to turn his people from repentance. The same servant that they had crucified on the cross. Again, Christ is the center. Four, let's look at chapter 4. Chapter 4 and verse 10. Chapter 4 and verse 10. Peter again speaking, Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. Again, the message very clear. In the same chapter, chapter 4 and verse 33, we have this concluding statement given us. And with great power, the apostles were giving witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. Continue into chapter 5. In chapter 5 and verse 42. Chapter 5 and verse 42. This is after Peter and John uh, had been tried before the Sanhedrin. They'd been beaten. And now they are released. And in chapter 5 and verse 42, And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ or Jesus as the Messiah. Again, the focus of their message, very clear. In chapter 6 and verse 14, Continue with me, chapter 6 and verse 14. For we have heard him say, <clears throat> so these are the people who are witnessing against Stephen. For we have heard him say that this Nazarene Jesus will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. Now even though these are false witnesses, clearly they're speaking the truth there, that the focus of the apostolic message was Jesus. Now, congregation, I could continue through each of these chapters of the book of Acts and make this point repeatedly to you, that, the, that Jesus Christ is the center and focus of all the apostolic ministry. I found it interesting that even as we came to the end, in Acts 28 and verse 31, and this actually is the text of the message this morning, Acts 28 and verse 31, we find that Paul, under house arrest, continues to preach the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness, unhindered. Now, don't, no doubt Paul said many things when he was under house arrest. No doubt he addressed a wide variety of topics. But every time, the focus narrowed to the Lord Jesus Christ. It was about Christ. And behind the scenes, the Spirit of God is working, drawing God's elect people out of their darkness, out of their misery, out of their blindness, out of their unbelief, and bringing them into the glorious kingdom of God. So, my friends, we have in the, in the history of the book of Acts God's testimony to us of who Jesus Christ is for his people and who the Holy Spirit is for his people. 
And that's why, especially in our, in our churches, in our circles, we always want to emphasize that preaching should be Christ-centered, that Christ should be the focus of all the message. Now, that does not mean that every sermon is about Jesus. Right? We, we understand that. Not every sermon is about Jesus. And yet, my friends, the ministry of the church all centers and focuses, maybe I could say it this way, it all ends in Christ. It all resolves itself in the Lord Jesus Christ. Every spiritual blessing that comes to us as the people of God only comes to us as we are in union with Christ. And there, my friends, is the essence then of what it means when we say Christ-centered preaching. And actually, Christ-centered preaching is not, is not quite correct. We should say Christ-centered ministry. Because all of our ministry as Christians, my friends, needs to be Christ-centered, not just the person standing in this pulpit. But dear fathers, your, your fathering and parenting of your children. Mothers, your mothering and parenting of your children. Catechism teachers, Sunday school instructors, elders, deacons, uh, uh, everyone, the ministry of this church, the ministry that we have to which we are called by God is a ministry of bringing people to the feet of Christ. All of our work is directed to that. Christ the center, the spirit the power. Well, my friends, I come to the end of my sermon now, and I want to deal with these two objections. Because I know I thought this uh, as I studied with you the book of Acts, and I'm sure this, this probably came up in your mind as well. My first objection is, is as Christians, we can, uh, we can become so discouraged. Maybe this isn't so much an objection as, as, as it is just a discouragement. That when we look at our lives as Christians, when I look at my life as a Christian, I don't see that same level of enthusiasm for the things of God that I read on every page of the book of Acts. In chapter after chapter after chapter, I read about people gathering day by day in the church from house to house, sharing all the needs together, praying and, and, and calling on God and studying the word of God, sitting at the apostles' feet and hearing their teaching. It seemed like it seems like they did nothing else. And I look at my own life, and I don't see anything uh, even close to that level of enthusiasm for the gospel. And so I, I begin to ask myself, am I a new covenant Christian? Sometimes when we look at our, our life as Christians, as, as the people of God, we can think, you know, honestly, I, I, I look more like the old covenant Christian. I look more like Israel. Stiff-necked and hard-hearted and constant relapsing into idolatry with very little enthusiasm for the things of God. How do we face that in our life? That obvious reality in our life? It can be very discouraging. And in fact, it can... I, I believe that Satan uses that as a tool to drive us even farther into despair and discouragement and even darkness. Two things, my friends, as we think about that objection to reading the book of Acts. And the first thing is, is just the obvious thing, right? Dear friends, if we need to look at our life this morning, 
and to recognize that we need to make changes, to recognize that our life is not going in the right trajectory, that our life as the people of God is going down, not up. If we need to come before God on our knees in the privacy of our own home and repent and grieve and lament the fact that we have left our first love as, as Christ wrote to one of the seven churches, then there needs to be repentance in our life. And repentance means that we don't just bemoan it and lament it, but it means that we make actual changes. And my friends, what better time is there to do that than at the beginning of this new year? As we've just launched into 2024, maybe you need to make changes in your life. Be zealous. The Lord Jesus Christ calls you to cut off right hands, to gouge out right eyes, to do whatever it takes to follow God fully with your whole heart. God blesses that. And yes, my friends, whatever you may think in your life, you are, if you're a believer this morning, you do live under the terms of a new covenant. That means, my friends, if along with our repentance, we should be men and women of prayer and to beg God to, to send His Spirit in greater power and greater force in our lives to lead us to be what we are. We are new covenant Christians. And we need to look and to act like it. Paul will often use that kind of expression, won't he? He'll say, you are this. Now act like it. That almost seems a little contradictory, doesn't it? But my friends, based on the word of God, I can say to you today that if you are a believer in Christ, you are a new covenant Christian. You have the spirit of God within you. Now live like it. And if you're not living like it, repent of whatever it is that you're doing. Put it, put it, throw it aside, kick it to the curb and focus on the Lord Jesus Christ. Beg for the Spirit of God to come in power. Remember, Christ the center, the Spirit the power. But in the second place, also, my friends, we do need to be aware of something when we read the book of Acts. We need to be aware that the Spirit of God in the book of Acts worked in a very direct and immediate way that is not what we expect and not what we experience in our life as Christians today, in our own time period, in this own dispensation in which we live. You know, we, we often tend to equate heightened experience with the presence of God. Emotional highs, strong feelings. Sometimes we have that in our life, right? Sometimes it's very unpredictable. We come to church just as we did on so many other Sundays, but for some reason... It seems as if the Lord comes down and touches us in a special way. We feel his presence. We sense his presence. The tears flow. Our heart can be filled with glory, with joy. Or our heart can be filled with sorrow at our sin, and we're convicted of it. But we have these elevated, strong feelings. And my friends, the mistake that we make is we equate those kinds of feelings with the presence of God. And in fact, we make this mistake that we only have the presence of God or the favor of God when we are experiencing those kinds of things. And so we can look at the people in the book of Acts, we look at their enthusiasm, and we can think, well, you know, I don't have that in my life. I must not be a true Christian. Or I must not have the Spirit of God. But we have to be very careful with that, my friends. Very careful with that. Because... 
The Bible says that the Lord takes pleasure in them that fear him and in those who hope in his mercy. Notice what it says there. That's a, a psalm. The Lord takes pleasure in those that fear him. Now, that fear, my friends, that means that daily respect that we have for God, walking with God in a life of respect and reverential fear, childlike fear. And in those who hope in his mercy. Now that doesn't mean, my friends, that we are always going to have these elevated feelings, these passionate, rapturous moments that God sometimes gives us. Now those are wonderful things. Those are gifts to be thankful for. But God expects us to live our life without those things. And and, and, and as, I, as I quoted that verse already, the Lord takes pleasure in that. May I say it reverently, my friends, that a life of steady, committed walk with God puts a smile on God's face. He is pleased with that. That's why sometimes in our churches, uh, you'll, you'll hear this expression, that we're a means of grace, a normal or regular means of grace kind of church. What do we mean by that? We mean, my friends, that by the steady, repeated use of the normal means of grace, I just mean prayer, preaching, the giving of of alms, the giving of of, uh, money uh, for the uh, taking a collection as we do in this church, the use of the sacraments, the normal means of grace, we serve and honor God. Yes, sometimes in the use of those normal means of grace, we experience something very special, very unforgettable. Maybe we can't even share it with our closest friends because we feel so close to God. We almost feel as if he's lifted us up to heaven. But my friends, the vast majority of times we come and we go. We don't have those rapturous, strong, elevated feelings. And my friends, the teaching of the word of God is that the Lord takes pleasure in that. The Lord takes pleasure in those that fear him and in those that hope in his mercy. Just a regular repeated, steady use of the means of grace. That is what God has called us to do, and God's blessing rests upon that. So my friends, those two things when we think of this first objection. First, where there's a need for repentance, let's face that. Let's confront it. Let's face it head on and make changes if we need to make changes. But in the second place, let's also understand that we serve God in a daily, steady, committed use of the normal means of grace. And it won't, our life won't look like the people, the Christians in the book of Acts. We won't be able to walk up to somebody and heal them directly. We won't have tongues of fire on our head. We won't hear a sound of a mighty rushing wind. But for all that, we continue until God calls us home. And that kind of steady use of the means of grace pleases God. Now, my friends, my second objection is actually very closely related to this first one. But the second objection that came up in my own mind, and I think probably in your mind too, is, you know, you you could say to yourself, you know, uh, if I could serve God, and if I could see in my life of service to God the same things that the apostles saw, the same things that the first Christians saw, again, I already mentioned the tongues of fire, but if I could see that I could walk up to a man and say, in the name of Jesus Christ, Get on your feet and walk. And I could watch that man stand up on his feet where he was completely lame. And now he can walk on strong two, two good strong feet. 
And he's walking around and leaping and rejoicing and praising God. If I could see as Paul did on the island of Crete when he saw that man Elymas, and he said, you, you son of the devil. And then he struck him with blindness. Remember that. And the man was immediately struck with blindness. Or just as we saw today in our reading of Scripture, if I could be bitten by a viperous, a venomous snake and just shake it off in the fire and walk off and nothing happened to me, right? It seems like serving God would be so much easier if I could see those kinds of miracles. Who wouldn't serve God if you saw Peter walking down the road and his shadow, just his shadow, was healing people? We don't see those kinds of miracles in, our, in the life of our church. But boy, if we really could see those kinds of things happening in our church, don't you think it'd be so much easier to serve the Lord? And there are people, even in our own day, who are telling us this, telling us these things. The Pentecostals and the Assemblies of God churches are well known uh, for their insistence that all these signs continue on into the present day, and that if your church doesn't have these signs, you're missing out on God's best for you. Some time ago, I did a, uh, a session here on the pastor of the Radiant Churches. You know the Radiant Church in Richland and one here in Portage, very uh, popular uh, churches, uh, but this is their teaching, right? That if you have not yet experienced uh, the baptism of the Spirit, as, as they define it, and the speaking in tongues and the and the, and the use of these miraculous signs in your church, then your church might, be, might still be a, a, a gospel church, but it's not experiencing the best that God has for you. You're missing out on, on all that God has for your church. Well, my friends, again, without getting into the whole discussion of, of Pentecostalism, I'd like, to, I'd like to look with you at two texts that I think can really help us uh, work through this in a very biblical way. Let's turn to the teaching of Jesus Christ, our Savior, the Lord and Master of the Church, in John chapter 20 and verse 29. John chapter 20 and verse 29. And here Jesus is dealing with Thomas. And remember, Thomas said, Lord, if I, if I, could, if I could see you, if I could see your wounded side, if I could put my hand in your in the nail scars in your hands, then I would believe that you really were risen from the dead. And when Jesus comes to appear to Thomas and the rest of the disciples, he says in John 20 and verse 29, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. Now my friends, the clear teaching of Jesus here is that Thomas was blessed because he believed in Jesus as the resurrected Lord. But Jesus says, Thomas, there's a higher blessing for another kind of people. There's another blessing for another kind of people, and that's those people who saw no miracle. They only heard the testimony that Jesus was risen, and they understood the prophecies I made of my own death and resurrection before I died, and they believed my word just because I said it. Not because they saw any miracle. Not because they saw me in person. Not because they saw the nail prints in my hands or the, my wounded side. No. They believed because I said it and nothing else. Blessed are those people more than the people who were eyewitnesses of me having risen from the dead. 
Now, my friends, when we apply that to our own church life today, I believe that it teaches us that in the regular, sustained, and repeated use of the ordinary means of grace that God has given us, we are blessed. We are blessed. And we should not look for something more or something higher. Now, that's not to say that God couldn't give such miraculous signs in our church. God is sovereign. He can do that as he pleases. But as of right now, he's not chosen to do that. And our response to that is to walk faithfully with him, to continue as Israel, treading our way through the desert, through the wilderness, to the promised land, to the celestial city, and being faithful every step of the way, whether God gives us miracles or whether he does not. One more verse that, it, again, teaches the same thing from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16 and verse 31. This is the story of the a Lazarus who was sitting outside the rich man's house. And you'll remember Lazarus died and he went to heaven. And then the rich man also died and he went to hell. And in Luke 16 and verse 31... Well, in Luke 16, uh, let's, let's start with uh, verse 27. Luke 16 and verse 27. Then Lazarus, or then the rich man says, he says to God, I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house. So he, he says to, to Abraham in heaven, please send Lazarus back to my family so that they can hear this truth and not come to this awful place where I am now. He says, for I have five brothers. Let Lazarus warn them so that they don't come into this place of torment. And then Abraham responds, But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And the rich man responds, He says, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. In other words, what the rich man is saying here is that it's not just enough that they have the law and the prophets. It's not enough that they just have the written word. But please, Abraham, send Lazarus, because if they see Lazarus, coming back from the dead, then certainly they'll believe. And the answer given is in verse 31. But he said to him, that is Abraham said to the rich fool, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. Again, my friends, this is a slightly different context. I understand that. But again, there's an emphasis here on just Moses and the prophets. Just the written word of God. We read it. We understand it, we believe it, and we apply it to our lives. And the need for a miracle, not really necessary, says Father Abraham, and God speaking through Father Abraham. And so Jesus teaches us again that it's not so much about a miracle. God can give them sovereignly as he pleases. But Jesus says that we are to follow the Lord Jesus Christ with a miracle, without a miracle. And so, my friends, let's be faithful in our use of the means of grace, uh, regardless of what God chooses to give us in the way of uh, elevated religious feelings or even miraculous signs. And so, my friends, uh, this brings then an end to the, our study of the book of Acts. In closing, I just want to say this. It seems to me, my friends, that the grand question that sums up the whole book of Acts, who is Jesus Christ for you? I think if Peter, John, if Paul was standing in this pulpit today and we said you can only have one sentence and when we look back over all what they did in the book of Acts, it would all come down to this. Who is Jesus Christ for you? 
Is he the Lord of heaven and earth, the Savior of sinners? Or is he just a prophet who taught many good things? My friends, with this question, you will die. And with your answer to this question, you will stand before the judge of heaven and earth. And all those who put their trust in Jesus Christ have the hope of eternal life. And all those who do not will be turned into the place of eternal torment. It all comes down to that. This is the great watershed of every human life. Christ is Lord, or he is not. Let us pray. Almighty God and merciful Father, we earnestly beseech you and beg, Lord, that your spirit would be poured upon us in power once again. As we've seen it in the days of old, and as we hope to see it in our own time, that men and women, rich and poor, young and old alike, would turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and lay hold of him. O Spirit of God, come down with power upon people living in darkness and bring them to the feet of Jesus so that we might rejoice and be glad all our days to see that your kingdom is coming, that the seed of the serpent, that his head is being crushed, and that the seed of the woman is coming, growing, expanding, and soon will fill all the ends of the earth. Lord, we long for the day when the fear of your name will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Lord, hear us as we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll close our service then by singing uh, from the Red Hymnal number 172. Number 172, speak, O Lord, as we come to you. And in verse 2, teach us, O Lord, full obedience, holy reverence, true humility. And verse 3, speak, O Lord, renew our minds. And what follows in the three verses of 172. And then without further announcement, we'll turn to the doxology, uh, which is number 68A in the Red Hymnal. So first, 172, the three verses in the Red Hymnal. And then the Red Hymnal for our doxology, number 68A.
receive the blessing of the Lord and go in peace. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.